please open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, and I'll be reading from verses 17 through 25. First Timothy five, seventeen through twenty five. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in fear and trembling, but in awe and in wonder at your majesty. Fathers, we've sung this morning the greatness of your name, the glory of the salvation that you have accomplished for us in Christ, the gospel that we hold so dearly. Father, we pray that as we come before your word, you would, by your spirit, continue to draw us mightily to yourself. Humble us before Christ. Convict us of sin. But Lord, would you bring us up to even heaven itself as we behold your glory in the face of Christ. And we pray that you do this by your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Unless you're a first-time visitor here to Greenbelt Baptist, you will have noticed, I hope, that we are committed to expositional preaching. Expository preaching is taking a book of the Bible And working through that book, however slowly, passage by passage, verse by verse, explaining the meaning of that passage in its contexts and applying it to our lives. We do this because we believe that it is the Word of God which does the work of God in the people of God. It's not the preacher's clever ideas, funny stories, or or family experiences, which we need to hear. It's the clear exposition of God's word. And because we do this, we, as preachers, are forced, and this is good, to preach on things that we would never likely choose as a topic ourselves. And thus the church is fed on the whole counsel of God, passage by passage, verse by verse. For instance, how many of you before last Sunday had ever heard a sermon on what it means to enroll widows and to take care of widows within the church? I hadn't. We wouldn't pick that as a topic, but going through 1 Timothy, that's where we were at, and we got God's word accordingly. But so it is in this week's text. 
Never in a million years would I want to stand up here in front of you, the church, and preach on why a pastor needs to be paid. That's awkward for me. But this is where the book of 1 Timothy is going. And because we believe that God has inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter, and we as a church need to know all of God's word, and because this passage is next in our sermon series through 1 Timothy, this is what we're going to look at. Last week, Paul wrote about how the church is to honor widows, and in this week's text, he gives us instruction on how to honor elders. But I want you to feel the weight of this passage before we look at it in detail. One commentator and theologian remarks that this passage contains the New Testament's most significant and advanced teaching on elders. It is such an uncomfortable passage that most books on pastoral care or Church organizations simply ignore it. But it is impossible, he says, to fully understand biblical eldership without grasping this highly informative passage. Why? This passage not only gives us instruction on how to show honor and give support to elders, that's the uncomfortable bit for me, but also instruction on how to protect elders from false accusations, discipline elders in unrepentant sin, and appoint new elders and pastors in helping to shepherd the church. This is incredibly important stuff. Here then are the three main points which Paul is laying out in this passage. The first, if you look, is in verses 17 through 18, which he describes providing a living for the elders who labor in preaching and teaching. Secondly, in verses 19 through 21, talks about protecting elders against false accusations and disciplining elders in unrepentant sin. And then thirdly, in verses 22 through 25, appointing as elders men who are already worthy of honor. Paul's first point is that elders ought to be shown honor. Look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. We've seen this already in the book of 1 Timothy, and the rest of the New Testament bears this out just as well, the churches are to be led by a plurality of elders. Elders, pastors, overseers, or presbyters. Uh, These all mean the same thing in the New Testament. And here Paul says that those elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. So what does he mean by that phrase, double honor? It seems from what Paul says here in the context that elders are to receive two kinds of honor. The first is honor in terms of respect. Paul gives similar instruction in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, where he instructs the church to, quote, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Again, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 17 says, to obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls and to do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it is here Paul instructs the church to hold and honor its elders. Pray for them. Encourage them. Show them true Christian love as, as brothers in the church and in honor. But secondly, Paul gives instruction to the church to give additional honor to those elders who preach and teach. Look at verse 17 again. 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Here the kind of honor which Paul means is financial, much like a keynote speaker will receive a financial honorarium. We see this in verse 18 where Paul says that the laborer deserves his wages. We need to see something important here, though, first. It seems that Paul is making a distinction between elders here. All elders, we would agree, the Bible teaches are to rule well. But some elders rule well through preaching and teaching. Of course, we've seen already back in chapter 3 that all elders must be able to teach. But the point Paul is making here is that some elders are specifically gifted and called to give their their primary labors to preaching and teaching. This plays out in churches with the plurality of elders. One elder is gifted to preach the word. Another elder is gifted to help lead administratively, whereas another elder is gifted and called to to help lead by by giving care and, and counseling people who hurt. Many times within the life of a church, a number of men are serving as good elders, ruling well, but, but are also financially supported through their own separate careers. But here Paul is saying that certain elders who give their lives to teaching and preaching need to be especially supported by the church because the task of preaching requires hard, diligent work, long hours of study, meditation, thoughtful and focused prayer on the passage and for the church to be Applying that passage. If the church wants to hear the right preaching of the word, and any good and right church should, well then the church must support men who can give themselves to the right study of that word. It's not insignificant that Paul equates here the preaching of God's word with ruling and leading well. Again, if it is the word of God which does the work of God within the people of God, then elders who desire to rule well must give the best of their time Indeed, some elders, their entire lives, to studying and teaching the word. The church is built, again, not by sharp business models, shrewd programs. It's not built by making ourselves more attractive to the outside world. The church of God, the body of Christ, is built up and ruled well by the right preaching of God's living and active word. So how does Paul support his claim that those elders who give themselves to preaching and teaching deserve double honor? By scripture. Look at verse 18. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now this first bit that he quotes comes from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, where the image is that of an ox tilling the ground. And the law that God gave was that the oxen should be free to eat what's springing up as they work on this ground. Don't muzzle that ox. Here Paul uses this to argue really from the lesser to the greater. If God was concerned with the oxen in Old Testament Israel, well, how much more should we be concerned for the preaching elders of God's church? The second bit which Paul quotes is actually a, a verbatim line found in Luke chapter 10 verse 7. There where Jesus himself states to the 70 who are going out to preach on the kingdom of God. And he says to those those people, those laborers deserve their wages. As a side note, it's fascinating to me that Paul equates here both the Deuteronomy passage and this passage in Luke as Holy Scripture. We know that the Old Testament Scriptures were seen by Paul and and Jesus and the early church as inspired canon. 
But here, Paul is already equating the writings of his friend Luke on the same level as Old Testament Scripture. Here's evidence, evidence which we see all over the the Bible, that that the Bible we have today wasn't put together and decided upon 100 years later by the Roman Catholic Church, but rather the early New Testament church was already recognizing inspired Scripture as soon as as it was being written. If you want to know more about why we believe that this is the Word of God and how the church has recognized that each book is inspired by God, I encourage you to come talk to me afterwards. If you don't care about why this is the Word of God and why each book is inspired by God, especially come to me afterwards, and I'd love to talk to you about that. Now, if we're honest, neither quotation here is particularly flattering to elders. In one verse, they're equated to oxen, who chud the ground, and another to low-level farm workers. As John Stott notes, Paul's point here is actually not to demean elders, but rather to highlight how hard the work really is. And thus, if an elder is ruling well, his hard, toilsome work should be rewarded. Now, it needs to be said before we move on that there are two dangers here. The one danger in extreme is what we see all too often on TV. Uh, Pastors who have distorted and perverted the gospel and have made it all about how much money they, and and therefore, by example, the people in their church can make. Something like Floyd Merriweather in the pulpit. This is not what Paul is talking about. In fact, in just the next chapter, he'll go on to condemn the love of money. Uh, These instructions that he gives here, is not incentive to be covetous, not to stimulate a love of money. But the other danger in extreme is not supporting a pastor at all, where though he works hard to feed the church on the word of God, he himself is struggling to feed, clothe, and house his family back home. That ought not to be. And though it is true that Paul worked by tent making, he also explains in 1 Corinthians 9 that His was a special case for unique reasons. In fact, in the very same chapter where he talks about supporting himself through making tents, he goes on to say this. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In the same way, the Lord commanded, Paul says, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 11 through 14. Now, I hope it's appropriate, and I pray you take this seriously. But myself and and, and my family are actually incredibly grateful to you all. that You have shown double honor, not only to Pastor Mike, but but in calling myself as well to to feed ourselves on the Word of God. That is something that that we are incredibly grateful for, and and I encourage you and and applaud you uh, for, for obeying this passage well. Paul now turns from good pastors who deserve appreciation to possible bad pastors who deserve rebuke. This we see in verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 20, And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What's interesting to see here is that though elders who preach and teach are considered worthy of double honor, so too are pastors who preach and teach susceptible to double or or constant accusations. You see? 
precisely because they're leading by declaring the gospel. They, above anybody else, are more susceptible to false and even at times malicious judgmentalism from others, either within the church or from without. So what Paul has in mind is instruction on how elders are to be first protected from false accusations. Imagine a scenario where a member in the congregation comes up to an elder in the church, elder number one, and brings an accusation about another elder, elder number two. What should elder number one do? According to Paul, he should not admit this charge at all. Why? Well, because a charge without two or three witnesses is not a substantiated accusation. Indeed, this, this practical regulation is necessary for the protection of pastoral leaders who are vulnerable every day to slander. And this is a serious thing to think on. Smear campaigns have ruined the ministries of godly men and have even ruined churches. Though there are many things that are at the root of this, one of the big sins that fosters these kinds of things, this destructive thing, is gossip. It's not only the person who itches to gossip news, but it's those of us who also fail to walk away or or stop the person from gossiping. The grumbler complains. Someone comes to criticize. And when someone is upset about something and, and misery loves company, the person will talk and talk about others behind their backs. We often euphemistically call this venting. Yet there's no constructive purpose in this kind of talk. No loving motive behind it either. Friends, this is sinful gossip which destroys. If you're prone to this particularly destructive sin, repent. In Christ, there is great forgiveness. And in his spirit, there's great power to find contentment and the power to learn how to hold your tongue, to learn how to speak only godly and loving and uplifting things. But Paul here is giving instruction about not listening to gossip about leaders, or even entertaining a serious accusation if it's made by only one person? Are we bold enough to say to someone, I'm sorry, unless there are two more witnesses to this, I cannot listen. Again, any charge must be endorsed by several responsible people before it can even be listened to. And this applies not only to elders, but to people in the congregation as well. If you've heard an insinuation or an accusation against an elder, but you are neither a witness to it nor an elder yourself, then you've heard gossip. And I encourage you to lovingly confront that brother and sister in hopes that they might repent. But notice as well to whom Paul is speaking. He's speaking here to Timothy, an elder at the church, which suggests to us that the proper way of bringing a charge of a genuine sin against an elder is to other elders. This, of course, shows us one more reason why there is a multiplicity of elders commanded within the church. But nonetheless, any charge against an elder must be brought, must be brought before a board of elders. And if it's a charge communicated to anybody else other than the elders, then that should be considered as gossip and divisive. But what if I have a complaint against another brother or a sister who's really sinned against me, and they're not an elder? Christ instructs us in Matthew 18 to go and confront that brother or sister personally, alone, 
He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, Jesus tells us, you've gained your brother. But, Christ goes on, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, most likely elders, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Excommunication. But, here's a huge side note. If the accusation is of a criminal nature, something that is against the law of the state, then you have the freedom and responsibility to go and report your charge to the police. There's no tension, usually, and Lord willing, between laws of the state and laws of the church. They should, in a good government, collide one, one uh, side by side. If someone is sinning by breaking the law, go to the law, in some cases, immediately. End of my side note. But we need to be reminded, uh, I think, of something even bigger. Uh, that all of us are sinners. We sin daily. Elders, deacons, uh, regular laypersons within the congregation. Most sins aren't public and scandalous. Most sins, as Scripture affirms, should be overlooked as we show one another grace and charity. Everyone in the church, including elders, must be in the habit of personally confessing to one another as well as forgiving and encouraging one another. This is normal Christian living. But this is not what Paul is speaking about here. He goes on to say in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If an accusation is not only confirmed by two or three witnesses, but also proven to be accurate, and if the elder involved refuses to repent even after private admonition, then, as John Stott puts it, the sadness and scandal of a public showdown cannot be avoided. The offenders are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may be warned. Here Paul is showing us that the sin must be dealt with in order to bring a healthy and godly fear to all who are watching. A fear that that unrepentant sin in the church is serious and bad and has no place within a gospel church. But also that the gospel must be protected. A church that fails to deal with unrepentant sinners and pastors and members is telling the outside watching world, the gospel of Jesus Christ has no changing effect upon us. It's not real. As one friend of mine put it, the church is just another soap opera drama with religious overtones. That ought not to be. This leads Paul to charge a most solemn of warnings to his young protege, Timothy, in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, Elders must rule fairly without giving the slightest hint towards favoritism, nepotism, judging in favor of bribery. This is a great warning to actually protect the weak and downtrodden within a church. You see, in a fallen world, elders sin and do so grievously. And elders who rule well must be able to protect the sheep, even if it means going to blows with another so-called elder or pastor or shepherd. This leads Paul to now give his third point, which is on how to ordain and appoint elders within the church. The men who are to be appointed as elders are men 
already worthy of honor. Thus, verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, men who are already elders should be slow in their appointment of other elders, watching carefully which men can serve and rule well. This will help, no doubt, in saving the church from scandal if the right appointment of elders is made. Why should elders be cautious? Look at the rest of verse 22. Don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. That is, Paul seems to be saying that if we appoint an elder who ends up bringing disgrace to the church through our hasty and unwise process of appointing him, well, then we who have appointed him are just as culpable, or at least will be implicated with that sin. You see, wise ruling elders are to avoid that. But then Paul adds this, seemingly out-of-place bit of advice in verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In fact, this is so obscure that our English translations have put parentheses around it. Uh, Parentheses did not exist in the Greek-speaking world of Paul's day, so the parentheses that you might see in your Bible are actually just our modern translators and elders communicating the idea that this verse just doesn't seem to fit the context at all. But I think it might fit it well. If you remember, the last real scandalous sin that Paul spoke about, and which I preached on a couple weeks ago, and 1 Timothy was dealing with certain leaders within the church, men who were in teaching positions and who may have been or aspired to be elders themselves, but were apparently teaching a false gospel. They were teaching things like, godly Christians don't drink wine. It's a sin to be married and intimate in marriage. Abstaining from certain foods and wine is the mark of true Christian growth. And we saw a couple weeks ago that that is actually false teaching from the pits of hell itself. Therefore, it makes good sense to me that Paul would actually encourage Timothy to not even give a hint of his being a part of this false teaching. So he tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Either that or Paul actually just threw that in here as good medical advice. It could be that. I'm fine with that too. But it seems to me within the context that Paul is instructing Timothy and thus all elders to be discerning about who else can become an elder. This is why in verses 24 and 25, he says that the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It is if a man has clearly a sinful life, that precludes him from becoming an elder. Then don't appoint that man. It's evident to everyone. Their sins go before them. But sometimes, Paul says, the sins of others appear later, and and, and so current elders must not be hasty in the laying on of hands to appoint other men. Attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses, whereas many times unsuspecting people often have hidden strengths that can serve the church well. And thus good good elders must learn to discern between the seen and the unseen between the outward appearance and, by God's grace and slow time, the reality of a man's heart. But for certain men, it is clear that they are righteous men who ought to be elders. Their good works are conspicuous. Current elders should be considering them to be appointed as new elders. 
Friends, we see here, I think, the utmost importance of how a church is to think about its elders. Good elders must be taken care of by the church. Good elders must be protected from the harmful evils of gossip and slander. Bad elders must be disciplined and, if need be, excommunicated. Good men who are called to teach and lead ought to be considered as new elders. Is this an issue that you're concerned about? Or is this just one of those passages and and one of those sermons that, that really has no meaning to your life and honestly, you could care less about? It's striking to me that this kind of direct and precise instruction is given in God's inspired word. God has written this for us. Are we so calloused as to care less about what God is saying to us? But even more so, these are instructions concerning the church, the bride of Christ herself. The church is not an insignificant footnote in the story of Christianity. Friends, it is front and center, for it is Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, who came and died for her. Christ loves his church so much that he spilt his blood to keep her and purify her. We ought then to take the instructions Paul gives us here, that Christ has inspired Paul to give us here, about how to be a church with the utmost of seriousness. And if we believe in the effective, substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, that Jesus has died to save a definite people to himself, and that those people are known as the church, then we must have the highest view of our local church. Vody Bauckham makes the point that the way many people think about the church wouldn't be the case if they really knew Jesus and the gospel. He likens it to, say, someone coming up to me and, and, and saying, Pastor Steve, you're cool. I really like you. I enjoy you. You and I, we, we, get, we get along really well. But I can't stand your wife. That's not going to fly. And yet people say that all the time. Jesus, yes. But I, I don't really like the church. Precisely because Paul knows this, the connection between the gospel and the church, that he's given such instructions for us. Instructions to strengthen and and help keep pure the bride of Christ. Won't that make us Puritans? Well, friends, I'd be honored if the world saw us as that. We serve a pure and holy God with a pure and powerful gospel. May we with all diligence and in the power of the Spirit prepare ourselves as pure as the bride of Christ in anticipation of our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his coming. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And though it is sharp and it offends us, Father, it is good for us. We pray, Lord, that that you would, by your word and your spirit, enable us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Enable us as a church uh, to remain pure and to fight for the purity of this church. We pray these things in Christ's name.